Hello, this is Weird Al Yankovic, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. I was going to summer camp, and my friend Janie Street was a huge Rolling Stones fan and a big Beatles fan, and I think she played me Please Please Me, and then the first movie had just come out, Hard Day's Night, And as an entire camp, we piled into the back of a flatbed truck with some sides on it. And we went to the theater in a nearby town, small town, and we watched the movie. And it was just great. From that moment on, I was pretty much hooked. Today's guest is American singer-songwriter Janice Ian. Ian has been lauded as one of the finest songwriters of her generation. Her signature songs include the 1967 hit, Society's Child, Baby I've Been Thinking, and the 1975 single, At 17, from her LP, Between the Lines, which reached number one on the Billboard album chart. Born in Farmingdale, New Jersey, Ian entered the American folk music scene while still a teenager in the 1960s. As her first major hit, Society's Child featured lyrics that concerned an interracial romance, a still taboo subject in mid-1960s America. Ian was 13 years old when she was motivated to write and compose the song, which she completed at age 14. Society's Child became a national hit in the summer of 1967. As perhaps her most well-known song, At 17 was written by Janice Ian at age 23 and produced by Brooks Arthur. She was inspired to write the single after reading a New York Times article about a young woman who believed her life would improve after a debutante ball and her subsequent disappointment when it didn't. Ian received the Grammy Award for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for At 17 at the 18th Annual Grammy Awards, and the song was nominated for Record and Song of the Year, respectively. At 17 was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2008. Overall, Ian has been nominated for 10 Grammy Awards in eight different categories. Ian has continued recording well into the 21st century, winning a second Grammy in 2013 for Best Spoken Word Album for her autobiography, Society's Child. This month, Ian will release her latest LP, The Light at the End of the Line. As her first album of new material in 15 years, The Light at the End of the Line also sets the stage for Ian's farewell North American tour in 2022. In addition to her work as a musician, Ian is also a columnist and science fiction author. Welcome, Janice Ian. When did you first discover your affectation for music? Well, my dad played piano and a little bit of guitar, 
And one day when I was about two and a half years old, I think I connected that the piano sounds were being made by him and I asked for lessons. So that was the start of it. It never occurred to anybody in those days that you could make a living doing it. That was something very, very far away. Um, but I loved it. The piano was my whole life until I picked up a guitar when I was 10. And then that became my whole life. And when I started writing songs, I was 12, I think. And that that sort of was the capper on everything. That finished everything off. And so um, from that point, was guitar your primary instrument or – or were you multi-instrumentalist? I went back and forth between guitar and piano. I played French horn and banjo and a bunch of other things, but none of them really as well as I ever played guitar. Um, I think that, well, I played piano as well, but then I had an injury and I had to stop playing. So luck of the draw there. So it made me a much better guitarist. <laughs> How about the, the, so you played the French horn. I am a fellow French horn player. You are. Oh my God. The spit valves. Yes. <laughs> or I was uh, probably about the same time in my life. Um, do you remember much about the instrument? I remember it being pretty difficult to try to master. Oh, yeah. One of the hardest. That and bassoon, I would say. I loved the French horn. I still run the scales in my head and all the variations. Uh, it's one of my favorite instruments to write for. Oh, that is so cool. I remember at uh, one point I was um, – I was practicing my fingering even though I didn't have a horn with me and I was sitting in a chair uh-huh. and as you do yeah you've been there and my band director walked by and she said you know you're going to be doing that for the rest of your life and I said oh no, of course I'm not no but you will and you know what what's so terrible about that I mean, there's worse things to do nothing at all because you know you learn those patterns and they're complex and they stay with you is the guitar is yeah. that for you too where you you find yourself picking out chords even when there's no guitar in sight? Uh, it depends on what I'm doing. If I'm working up a new song or a solo, absolutely. And I'm, I'm thinking about that. But otherwise, uh, gosh, I don't know. I suppose yes and no. It depends <laughs> on what I'm doing at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of, that was a, that was a question right out of left field. So, um, so as, uh, as I think the world of social media, if they don't know it, they should they should know that you are a serious Beatles fan, correct? Oh, well, who isn't? I mean, nobody in their right mind. You know, I think, I, I hope that we are all past the argument of which is better, the Beatles or the Stones, because I hope that we've all come to a place where we understand that it's all music and it's not a contest. It's just making music. But Beatles, sure. What, what person in this century or the last who is still alive, hasn't been influenced by them. I, I, I understand that question completely. And um, I have the privilege as a university professor, semester in and semester out, of watching students as they fall in love with them and, and make that discovery. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. And um, when I ask them about this new love for the Beatles, they'll say things like, well, I had no idea they were there, but now that they are. <laughs> um, it's amazing at that age how much you don't know is there isn't it oh it is but you know once they make the discovery they're all in that's great and uh, well i think it's it's timeless music i mean that's a cliche but it is timeless music 
Right. And great writing is great writing. Absolutely. And, um, you know, they don't care about Beatles versus Rolling Stones or, mm-hmm. or any of those questions. They're not, they're just absolutely not in that atmosphere and that environment of, of concern. Um, Good for them. Yeah. I, oh, I agree. And of course, I'm eminently jealous of them because they're making this discovery for the first time. And I think you are mm. so young and you have a whole lifetime to be able to listen to this music. Yeah. So tell me. Uh, that's great music. When was your Beatles discovery? How did it happen? Um, I was going to summer camp and my friend Janie Street was a huge Rolling Stones fan and a big Beatles fan. And I think she played me please please me and then the first movie had just come out hard day's night and as an entire camp we piled into the back of a flatbed truck with some sides on it and we went to the theater in a nearby town small town and we watched the movie and it was just great from that moment on i was pretty much hooked do you remember which songs uh captured your heart the first the first time around I think Please Please Me, just because it was so fresh. It was so, uh, I don't know how to put it. It was like a folk song, but it wasn't a folk song, if that makes sense. Everything they wrote, you could sing along to. So in that sense, it was just like folk music. And you can play to it. And it had these amazing chords, like diminished sevenths and flat nines and things, that you could discover in jazz, but mainly, I, I think, honestly, it's the vocals. Mm-hmm. The vocals between Lennon and McCartney are so riddled with energy. And I don't know if that's something that George Martin pulled out of them or something they always had, but certainly the two of them together for me was greater than the sum of its parts. Oh, I have to agree. And, of course, I'm sure for the rest of their lives, Paul, of course, still living, they will... <laughs> they had have had to deal with that, right? The knowledge that there was this other half out there. Um, yeah. It's unfortunate that it ended the way it did because really it, to me, it's like having an ex co-writer. You still are grateful for everything you learned from that person and all the great songs that came out of it. And yet they were so very young when they started. And then when they finished that it's hard to fault them for that too. Right. And then, it's you know poor Paul, right? I mean, obviously poor John and his family, but Paul was really robbed of. Uh, uh, they were robbed of that second act they may have had. Well, I, yeah, I wouldn't want to speculate on whether they'd have had a second act. I mean, that's a lot of water under the bridge there. That's really it, and at this point, forty-one years plus the the, the years of uh, disbandment. So, absolutely true. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's hard to speculate because. Certain performers never have a second act. Certain performers try it and it fails, like Simon Garfunkel. Uh, some performers do it because they need the money, which I can't imagine with the Beatles, but who knows? Some performers do it because they're hungry for the feeling that they had back then, like going back to an old lover, expecting that that feeling will come back. It's a, it's a very dicey thing to to try and turn back the wheels and... And you have to watch that you don't roll over the curb and somebody's foot, you know? That's right. Maybe your own foot, even. Maybe your own foot. <laughs> Often your own foot, yes. So when you, you, you brought up songwriting, and I've mentioned it a couple of times now, which is not surprising since 
You are one of uh, our country's great singer songwriters, but thank you. Um, what, what when when you talk to younger people today, how do you help them understand the the songwriting of the Beatles? I wouldn't presume to do that. I would. <laughs> I, I would honestly. I teach master classes, and I wouldn't use them even as an example. I don't think I would talk about them but most of the examples I use are either what not to do or how to do something that's usually done badly like Marianne Faithful's Why'd You Do It where she uses a string of profanity brilliantly in a way that uh, no one has ever done before or done since where you can't imagine the song without that Uh, the Beatles you're talking about great writing I mean all three of the writers in that group were great writers So I wouldn't want to be a teacher trying to parse that or analyze it. I I try to stay away from that, honestly. (laughs) Well, I get it. I was, I, I am, I'm rekindling my own guitar playing and my, good for you. uh, Thank you. And my, uh, just this week, my guitar teacher was, uh, was demonstrating a few tracks to me and he was playing some of the, the chords and the chorus of revolution and he played it and he looked up at me and he said, you know, why would anybody ever play that chord there? But it's perfect. He said, it makes no think, sense. It's not even in the right key, but there it is. Well, happy mistakes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they were also really lucky in George Martin. They had a producer who actually listened very hard to what they were doing and then tried to help them do it better. Sure. I think that was a major thing. Oh, absolutely. And it helped that George wasn't a traditional producer, you know, coming by way of, of his own music school education. Mm -hmm. And that he wasn't a pop producer. Oh, that's right. I mean, I, you know, can you just imagine him saying I've been assigned what (laughs) I must've been just, just, I don't, I don't even know what he would have been, but it must've been a real, um, he really stepped up. You know, he put aside any preconceptions and and he dealt with their talent. Because if you listen to those early, early recordings, everything is pretty raw. And they're coming out of that Hamburg vibe. And they're not thinking about things like, yes, but the, the song has to have an ending. You know, it really does need an ending. They're going on instinct rather than having any craft. And there's George Martin bringing decades and decades of craft to it. And understanding not just of um, not just of structure, but of what needs to s- surround the structure in order for the structure to have the props that it needs to shine and to look at its best. And then they take that and they just fly with it and make some of the greatest music of uh, of all time. I think we'll be right back with more from Janice Ian after these messages. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We're back with Janice Ian on Everything Fab Four. 
So you um, were fortunate to have a ringside seat in a way as they went from, um, my gosh, those early songs in 63, 64. uh, And then by the time we get to 1966, they are taking listeners on a very unexpected journey. Hmm. Um, What was it like to experience Revolver and Sgt. Pepper and and then the White Album? But those were sort of in the zeitgeist. That's a very overused term when you talk about this stuff, but that's what everyone was going through. So I don't think that was the astonishing part. The astonishing part to me as an artist is the control they took. They really took control of their work, of their appearance, of their of what they said, you know, rubber soul, when they start actually talking about I don't know, terrible way to describe it but deep things in a different way and then on sergeant peppers coming up with everything from the initial concept of the song to the album itself to being open enough to allow someone else to come up with that cover concept and releasing that i think that they that's part of what is so fascinating about them they surpassed their own expectations. Because when you're a kid and you're dreaming of, oh, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make a living, I'm going to have, I mean, for boys that age, it certainly is, I'm going to have all the girls at my feet, all of that stuff. You don't think about, and then I'm going to change the world, you know, then I'm going to change music forever. You don't think about that. You think about, and then maybe I'll, I'll be able to afford a house. Or maybe I'll be able to take care of my mom, or maybe I'll get laid, all of those things. You certainly don't think about, I'm going to embrace a counterculture that many people have problems with, and I'm not only going to embrace it, I'm going to make it my own, and I'm going to help define it further. And then I'm going to put that down in a way that no one else has to date. You know, on and on and on and on. I mean... Again, the sum of the parts, because they all do it at once. And and as a performer, again, I think about it and I think there they are essentially locked in rooms with one another for three years. Nobody else, no other performer can know what that was like because that was all brand new. Nobody, including Elvis, had reached that kind of height worldwide, toured worldwide, and continued on and on and on. More songs, more great songs, more great records, more great performances. Nobody had done that. So there they are, singular. And what must that have been like for the four of them, that, that they were the only ones who understood, you know? I can't even begin to imagine that. One last thing uh, about about um, the Beatles in the new Get Back documentary. Um, I was really pleased when uh, very early on McCartney is in an unguarded moment, and that's the purpose of a, a lengthy documentary like that, right? And he's talking about how happy he is at this recognition that not only have they made all of this wonderful music and they have a body of work, but they're getting better. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was really uh, it was really interesting. Have you had moments like that in your career where you can feel change? I think so. I think all artists do. Uh, it may not take the same form. Again, going back to the 
three years of living on top of each other and the, what was it, four years before that, of basically living in each other's pockets, you build up a lot of animosity. You build up a lot of slights. It's one of the things you have to be really careful about when you're in a band or when you're on the road with a crew is that you see each other at your worst as well as at your best. And it's hard to... It's hard to see the forest for the trees at that point because you, you are in the middle of so much. They they were living in a whirlpool, basically, and trying not to get sucked down into it. So I would imagine that just like when you're having a hit record, you don't really know you're having a hit record because you're too busy working. <laughs> when they were in the middle of it, yeah, they knew they were successful, but I would imagine they would have no concept of how successful and how broad their range had become until it was retrospect. I wonder if you could say a few words about how professionally um, you began to record and, uh, and, and began to, to build this career that continues. Well, mine was kind of unintentional. I was living very much in the folk world and I'd had a song published by Broadside Magazine, which was, kind of the songwriters magazine first to publish Dylan first to publish Paxton uh, first to publish me and through broadside I had met Reverend Gary Davis who brought me down to the Gaslight Cafe and had me open for him and I had written this song called Society's Child a guy was there and he literally came backstage yelling I'm gonna make you a star kid that was amazing and I kind of laughed being part of the folk world and sneered and said, you and what army? <laughs> but sure enough, he took me to a producer, Shadow Morton. Shadow at that point had only produced uh, the Shangri-Las. After Society's Child, which he produced, he went on to produce The Young Rascals, uh, Shangri-Las, myself, Inagata DeVita, um, Vanilla Fudge, just an amazing group of diverse artists it was a, a really different time, as as you well know, Ken. It was very different from now. You didn't go into it thinking that you were going to be global. You went into it thinking, man, if I'm lucky enough to earn a living doing what I love, that's awesome. And if there's a little fame with it, then that's even more awesome. And the song was pretty challenging, right, for the mid-1960s in terms of content. It was. It was about a black boy dating a white girl, and a lot of people got um, extremely upset about it. To put it, to put it very mildly, they somebody burned a radio station to the ground for playing it. People were fired for playing it. Um, I got a lot of death threats. My family were threatened. What is dismaying is that just to inject a note of seriousness here that we're still having those same fights today. There are still people who think that people of color are somehow less and that white people or people of non-color, if you will, are somehow more. There are still people who accept that sort of racism as natural. It's, it's very discouraging sometimes if you think about it. And then, you know, you look at these British groups where they were coming from an entirely different place in terms of skin color. And you look at how hard they work to pay homage to their heroes, 
to give their heroes uh, a living and a break. Look at people like Tina Turner with the stones and Mick standing side of stage watching every move she makes and copying the dance steps. Um, the Beatles, Little Richard with that scream on that first album. All of that sort of stuff. And, and it gives you hope, or at least it gives me hope. Oh, it sure does. We were lamenting the other day in class the state of affairs and, you know, the my gosh, the potential that we could arrive or, or they could as the future generation at the 200th anniversary of the end of the Civil War with America still wrestling with the same old problems. And yeah, yes, it, uh, yes. And yet, and yet those problems are being brought to light, I think, in a different way. One of the few good things about social media. That's right. People get called into question and it's out there forever. Don't you wonder? I mean, I know for me as an artist to try and keep up with Twitter and uh, Instagram and Facebook and blah and blah and blah, plus do my email, plus do my letters, plus do my phone calls, plus do my internet Zoom stuff and all of that. It's next to impossible to be creative while you're doing that because you're doing that instead. I wonder if the Beatles would have had Twitter accounts or embrace that or I mean that's a silly line of of thought but I wonder if they would have been able to be creative because I'm becoming more and more convinced that it kills creativity well, I think you're absolutely right and I remember when the 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper rolled around and the CDs came out remember that year and George, oh yeah. yeah George Harrison said you know if we had the technology they have today we would never have finished anything because you know, yes. four tracks means you have to, four tracks is problem solving. <laughs> you know, it's how do we get these ideas yes. captured? And of course, and, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and rehearsing. That's right. And George Martin was wonderful, obviously, at that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, you know, fast forward to 1987 and you've got, what, about that time, you have at least 16 track, if not um, maybe even 32 by that point. You know, and George Harrison said we would have just gotten bogged down in, in using all of that technology and all of those tracks. And Sure, sure. I think it's a real problem. Uh, myself, if I had my druthers, I would record on 8-track or 16 at the most so that I would have 2-inch tape and uh, probably 8 because that's what I started on. And I think that gives you the best sound. Or I would go straight from the microphone to the board and right onto tape myself because I think you can, you can also, and you hear it a lot in mixes, you can mix something to death. You can tweak it to death. You can just kill it with kindness as it were, you know, it's too many options. Sure. Just too many choices. Yeah. You open up garage band and how, Oh my God. You can be mad for effect in 10 seconds. <laughs> It's why I don't own any recording equipment. I have an old DAT player and I have a phone that will record. And that's it because when I did own recording equipment, I found myself being an engineer more than I was being a songwriter. And like on the new album, almost all of those vocals are first takes. I don't think there's a third take among them because something happens the first time around. If you're rehearsed, if you're prepared, that doesn't happen after that. So how do you... How do you um, go about recording an album then in this day and age with all of this technology, with all of this instant access of social media constantly interrupting our lives? How, 
Tell me mm. about the process of for Janice Ian to go into the studio in this part of this century. Well, it's clearly been very different these last three years because almost everything I did was done remotely. So uh, when I was working with Vince Gill, Vince was on tour with the Eagles and he had 10 minutes at home in his home studio with his engineer and he laid down the solo that we needed. When I was working with Randy Liego, he had a home studio and he was out with the Beach Boys. So we'd talk from the road and send things back and forth. And I'd be saying, mm, I think more bass drum there and less of this there. And oh, by the way, can I try this? Most of my current album was recorded either at a friend's studio, just sitting there singing into a microphone, or at home into a DAT machine and then transferred. The albums before it, I think, well, Focus the New Black was the most recent before this one. That was 15 years ago, and that was done in a week with all the musicians in the studio looking at one another. That's my preferred way. That's how I grew up. I would much rather do that than uh, try and record everything separately or long distance. I like hearing that because, of course, when I I think I'm not alone in this, when I think of Janice Ian, I hear your voice and an instrument, right? And Mm. it's it's interesting that, uh, you know, you too, not surprisingly, I guess at the same time, like the collaborative nature of 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 this art i think that in a lot of ways music would be much improved these days if people were forced to stay in a room with four tracks and make something workable i think that would be a great improvement because it goes back to the nashville songwriter ethic which is if you can't just sit there and sing it it's not a great song and it's not going to make an enduring record it may make a hit record but it's not going to endure even if you look at something like baby shark that's got a great melody. It's an amazing, catchy melody and funny lyric. Not much of one, but funny. So it works. But I could go on stage and sing Baby Shark to open my shows, which is my plan, and it'd be great. It'd be fun. It'd give the audience something that would be fun. And I'm sure that 10 years from now, they will still be listening to that. You know, It's like the Beatles songs that we were talking about. How many years is it now? A bazillion years later, we're all still listening and still learning, including Paul McCartney, I'm sure. No, absolutely. You know, um, and as long as you stay engaged, of course, that happens. Um, I would be remiss and my listeners would be furious if I didn't ask you about the origins of At 17, which I'm sure you've been asked about a thousand times, but it's just such a powerful song. I remember young me hearing it and thinking this is really moving this kind of, uh, this kind of commentary and um, exposition. And maybe I could write songs too. Can you, can you sort of give us a sense of how that came about? Well, I'd have to move back into my mother's home because I was in the middle of albums And Between Stars, which was the first album I made as an adult, and Between the Lines, which had At 17 on it, there was no work because I didn't have a hit record. So I moved back in with my mom, and I felt like I needed to write every day just to justify her faith in me. I was sitting at her dining room table with a guitar, practicing, uh, but not really, just kind of fooling around with that little ding, 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 guitar lick. And 
I was reading an article in the paper that was talking about a young woman who thought that her life would be solved once she came out as a debutante. Then she discovered that it was not solved. It was very far from solved. So I went ahead and started fooling with this. The opening line, I think, of the article was something like, I learned the truth at 18. But 18 didn't scan, so I wound up with 17. And the song kind of took off from there. And is it one of those things when uh, you realize this is different when you're writing it? I, I recently was reading about Paul Simon when he was talking about when he was writing Bridge Over Troubled Water. And he thought, wow, I, I usually don't write songs that are this good. Yeah. I, when I finished at 17, I did two things. I played it for a friend with an encyclopedic knowledge of music because it felt so familiar that I was worried I'd stolen the melody. And I called my then manager and said, I think I've just written a single. Uh, I just knew that that had the potential. It must be so gratifying to to have uh, composed and performed the song. And then quite literally, folks are discovering it. It's amazing. Yeah, and they have a, a transformative experience with it. It is amazing. I think it's amazing to have written anything that endures in this messy and overpopulated world um, of music. There's so much out there that when I go on YouTube and I see somebody listening to At 17 or Society's Child for the first time, it's amazing to me that anybody even thought to listen. It's great. It's an honor. is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.